Welcome to another episode of Community Pulse. My name is Jason Hand, and uh, we've got a really awesome episode uh, here. We've got uh, Anil Dash. Um, so before we uh, hello. say hello to him, we'll go around the horn uh, and uh, introduce the rest of it, the rest of the group. Let's start with PJ. Hey, everybody. PJ Haggerty uh, at Esplenic on Twitter. Uh, happy to be here for another episode. Hi, everyone. It's Mary here uh, at Mary underscore Grace on Twitter. Glad to have you here. And I'm Anil Dash, and Anil Dash on Twitter made it easy. Awesome. So yeah, as Jason mentioned, we've got Anil here today, um, taking a break from talking to people who specifically have community manager in their title, but Anil does have a large background in community and is very passionate about that. So Anil, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, these days, my uh, primary job is uh, as CEO of Funk Creek Software, which uh, I started uh, I joined uh, late last year and Fall Creek is a company that invented Trello and co-created Stack Overflow and uh, made fog bugs and has done a bunch of really great work over the years and, and that sort of culminated in our latest um, project glitch, um, which hopefully will come up later while we're talking about community. And um, and the route that I got here through was being at you know different startups and teams over the years that have built a lot of tools and social media, social networking. Uh, with the heart of it almost always being about um, making meaningful communities. I mean, I think one of the biggest lessons I learned in getting the sort of privilege of getting to build tools for people that build community was that there are rules and processes and, and standards you can put in place to make them a positive experience. And so uh, being evangelical about that idea that we could actually have good, healthy, you know, humane communities online is like one of the most important things in the world to me. Definitely, definitely. And your, your bio on your website, as well as on Twitter, says that you're a technology entrepreneur, activist, and writer focused on making the tech world more humane and ethical. And I love that, because I think that that relates back to a lot of what we as community managers and developer relations folks want to do as well. We want to make our customers' lives easier. We want to make our communities' lives easier. We want to make their experience easier with our product um, and improve their relationships. So Yeah, there's definitely a strong sense of responsibility, I think. Exactly. Exactly. Um, what are some of the ways that you see to achieve that type of forward movement in tech and in society in general? You know, I think there's a basic education that still has to happen about the idea that we can make healthy communities at all, right? Like I still see, I'm shocked, like after all these years, I still see the defense of like bad behavior online is inevitable. And I'm like, you know, I live, I live in New York City. Like, I live in a city with 10 million people in it. And people are not, like, slugging each other in the face and calling each other slurs all the time. I mean, a little bit, but not, you know, mostly. Right. And, and so, like, you know, we're humans. We've been living in, you know, together with each other for 10 or 20,000 years. We figured out some ways to be decent to one another. If we can take what we learned in the physical world and apply it to the digital world, we can get pretty far down the road to having a, you know, sort of a healthy sense of community and actually like getting a lot of that value, all the positive stuff, the reason we all got online in the first place, the, the sort of the hopes we had in connecting to one another. I think just circulating that idea that, that it can be good um, is one of the most important things. And then also, you know, sort of uh, underpinning to that is making sure that the way we build our products, the, the, the business models that we rely on, all those other things around it, um, encourage that sort of idea that everybody's gonna be their best selves. Uh, I, I actually have a question about that because I, I think this is interesting. Do you think that, uh, especially with uh, online interactions, like is there a point that someone reaches, like say, you know, 
they kind of talk a lot about this with, with Twitter where it's kind of an echo chamber and you're kind of only following people that you know or people that have mm -hmm. the same opinion as you. Do you think that online mm -hmm. and, and even with products, do you think that people reach an interaction point that either is going to open their eyes or is going to solidify some sort of uh, outdated belief about whatever? You know, I think it depends on the context in which it happens, right? So we, we understandably talk about, you know, here in the U.S., how polarized things are politically and how fraught every, you know, conversation is online because of that. But, you know, you go to a ball game, you go to a music concert, a rock show, like, that, it actually doesn't come up, right? Because you've created a context where people are not going to be like, you know, I, I hate how you feel about this issue. You know what I mean? You're like, okay, like we're going to have some beers together. We're going to watch a ball game. It's going to be fine. You know, I, I, if I go to a, uh, whether I wear a Yankees or a Mets fan here in New York, like I can go to the game and you, know, you do that thing where you hand the hot dog down the row. Like nobody's like, I'm throwing it on the ground. You're, you know, like you're a jerk. You know what I mean? Like there's this sort of like base level civility, even with like, and it's not like baseball doesn't rile people up. You know what I mean? It's not like sports isn't something that people are passionate about. Mm -hmm. You make an environment there's at least a base level expectation or uh, alternately the threat that you could get kicked out if you get too rowdy. Um, and all of a sudden people are mostly decent. And that's with, in our case, like 50, 60, 70,000 people showing up. Right. Um, and that's bigger than a lot of communities online or a lot of context and communities online. And I think the, the standard excuse is like, Oh, once you get to a certain size, people are going to act like jerks. I'm like, I don't think that's really true. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's a, it's a matter of critical mass where it's like, Oh, now we have 50,000 and one. Yeah. And the one yeah. person that's broken well, everything. I see that with like, you know, I got to watch Stacker Overflow from the very beginning. And I'm assuming, you know, this is an audience. Folks know what that is and what that means. And, and you know, that it would work at all was sort of surprising. You know, sort of like, okay, wow, people can really help each other. But, you know, you see now, and I'm still on the board. So like, you know, I, although I don't think I really need to pitch Stacker Overflow to people that are developers. But the 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 thing that's interesting to me is... It's probably in the top 50 websites in the world in size. It's huge, huge. Bigger certainly than, you know, 99.9% .9 of sites. And things like programming languages and frameworks are things that people are very passionate about. You see them on other parts of the web getting and shouting matches with each other about like, no, your programming language sucks or your toolkit is bad or whatever. And yet, even though that's what people are talking about all day on the site, there are not big mobs of harassers on the site. Right. There's not, you know, there's like you're not going to get a lot of hate speech because you show up to ask a question about how to use jQuery or something. You know, and I think that's a really interesting. I mean, you might like off offsite people might malign you for that, but I think it's a really interesting thing where like, and there are there are things that need to be fixed. It's like it's not friendly enough to newbies, and like they're still improving that stuff. But at, at the fundamental level, is like somebody going to dehumanize you for showing up in this large community? The answer is no. And so, like, we've shown that they can work at very large scale. And so that excuse of, like, oh, if you have tens of millions of users, you can't possibly have it be a civil place is demonstrably false. Yet we still right. see that treated as if it's just, you know, gospel. Right. Mm -hmm. and I, so think I feel like, oh, sorry, Mary. Just let me get, I got one thought I want to say real quick before I forget it. The, you know, a big reason, obviously, for a lot of, um, I don't know, silliness online and uh, kind of fighting and, and just, I don't know, I can't think of a better way than just say, calling it silliness, to be honest, that negativity. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be negative. It's just going to be random. It's whatever, but it's um, in most cases hidden behind anonymity. And mm -hmm. you know, when you, when you start talking about a community like stack overflow uh, I don't know that there's a lot of anonymity and, and I think people want, want that to not be that way. They want. So I would draw, I would draw a distinction there. there. 
I think I might disagree with you a little bit here. Um, I, I think identity is very complicated, right? And so there's three big buckets. One is the like real names or whatever, and how, like Facebook, probably the best example there. There's total anonymity where like the four chains of the world, nobody has any persistent identity. And then pseudonymity, which we use a lot, right? You pick your name, you sort of stick to it. I might not know what your, you know, your government name is, but <laughs> I, I know sort of, oh, well, this is that guy who always says that thing. There's enough persistence there to build a reputation and identity. And um, in the particular case of Stack Overflow, anonymity is total, not only totally possible, but actually kind of encouraged. You can go in to the homepage of Stack and ask a question right now without ever having signed in, provided an email, done anything. And in fact, millions of people do that. Um, which is really interesting and I think really unique. And, you know, part of that is just about like you always are designing for certain behaviors. You're designing for it is okay to ask a question. It's always okay. That's something that's really normal and expected and encouraged. And you don't want to put any barriers there. Um, but what are the incentives for having a pseudonymous, consistent, persistent identity, whether it's your real name or not? I want to be able to earn, you know, whatever points or, or reputation or, or, you know, achievements based on the fact that I help other people on the site, then I'm going to sign in. But the signing could be an email. It could be Facebook. It could be nothing. It could just be a name and I, you know, I pick a password. And I think that sort of choice about how much of myself do I want to put out there is separate from, do I want to build a reputation? I think that's really important because the, the Facebooks of the world sort of think, oh, well, real name identity, you know, tied to your ID or something like that is the way to prevent abuse. And it's like, I don't, I don't know what everybody else's Twitter mentions are like, but or Facebook, but like <laughs> I've had people like literally threaten me under their real name. Like I had a LinkedIn piece where somebody was like, like posting, what I thought was pretty hateful stuff. And I was like, that's your, that's your, like your resume, you know what I mean? Like, it's like your LinkedIn account. And so like people are not, like just because your name's attached to it doesn't mean, especially online, that they won't be a jerk about it. And so I think it's identity is separate from trust and relationships that are in design that cause good behavior. And I think it's really they're they're related, but they don't one doesn't imply the other. Right. And I think a big part of Stack Overflow, and I've had conversations with people about Reddit along the same lines, like good behavior begets good behavior and seeing mm -hmm. how other people are responding to the newbie questions and seeing how other people are responding to, okay, that might not be my preference to use this tool or that programming language, but mm -hmm. I can solve that problem for them. And I know the answer yeah. to that thing means not only that, that you're going to get more responses like that, but also it turns into almost self-policing. So when yes. someone does come in and say, well, how dare you use this thing? You don't almost you almost don't need the Stack Overflow folks to go. Ah, that's not okay. Because yeah, because it's seen as a transgression, right? There's a set of right. norms and expectations and all the things we have, right? Like if somebody right. comes into the lobby of our building and is shouting stuff, you're like, whoa, whoa, calm down. Like you might give them a, like that's not what we're doing here. <laughs> and then if they persist, you're like, all right, you're out. Yeah. Right. And and I think you know whatever you ever see somebody like raise their voice at a restaurant or something, you're like, gosh, that's really this isn't the place. And I think being able to create that sense of expectation. And I think Reddit is a really good example because Reddit and Stack are both sort of networks of individual communities, right? Uh, where there's like, a, you know, different sites on Stack Overflow and different subreddits. And, um, you know, I think there's a real sense across well, all kinds of communities. I mean, this is true in the real world too, unfortunately, but I think online where the worst thing you tolerate defines what the community is, you know, the, the, and I think that's true 
yeah, I'm mindful of like there are ways that gets extrapolated in the real world that are sort of that that aren't fair to people. But I think, you know, online in terms of building infrastructure, so I was thinking of like if if you let people be really horrible to each other in one part of your site, you can't expect in some other part they're gonna all of a sudden be nice. Right. Like <laughs> right. that just doesn't work that way. It's just common sense, you know. If you like you, you know, the, the sort of, you can't have a bar where like people are brawling in the back and in the front, they're like, Oh, let's have this wine tasting. Like, you know what I mean? Like it just doesn't <laughs> happen that way. Right. Um, and, and so I think that, that, and then we just read, we read those cues and, and you know, like intuitively, instinctively as, as humans that like we know how to socialize. And so I think that's one, and it's really hard to put the, the, you know, sort of the cat back in the bag. Once people find out your community has a, you know, a, a neighborhood that is not welcoming to them. You know, then right. they're like, okay, the whole thing is off, off limits to me. Right. And that actually segues really well into a blog post of yours that I referred to a couple times and that actually uh, when, I don't know if you're aware of this, but when you Google a Neil Dash community, it's the first thing that comes up. <laughs> you have a blog post. I, I, I hope from, that's good. Yeah, absolutely. Back from 2011, um, talking about if your website's full of assholes, it's your fault. Mm. And, and how to handle that and what to do about that and the, the excuses that people make, but also the, the choices that we need to make as community managers to, to make sure that we're setting ourselves up for success with how our community is relating to each other. Yeah, you know, it, it still is shocking to me that it, it's an argument that needs to be made at all. Right. It's really obvious. Like I have, I have a six year old kid and you, so you end up going to birthday parties every weekend. Cause like, that's all every mathematically you have 30 kids in a class, 50 weeks in a year, you're going to have like, <laughs> you're not going to a birthday. And so you go to these birthday parties and like, you know, and kids are raucous and they're hopped up on cake and pizza and all the other stuff. And so like, there's always going to be this thing. And you like even if you've never met the kid before you don't know the parents or whatever instinctively you just sort of heard the kids get like whoa 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 okay let's not be wrestling boys or like let's not you know set this thing on fire kids like whatever it is um you're just like let's let's dial it down and you don't have to like like i don't have to tell some other dad like they probably shouldn't you know take the birthday <laughs> candle and fire to that thing like they just like you just know what to do right. and <clears throat> somehow we get online and people are like, gosh, I just thought it was really important to let people set stuff on fire here. You know, like I didn't want to, I didn't want to constrain them. I didn't want to rein them in, even though they were like, those kids were burning down, you know, the, the party hats. And I think it, it's just this, and I don't, I mean, I think there's this, like, there's some cultural reasons why the web was that way. Like there was this sort of like wild west mm -hmm. story that was told about the web 20 years ago, but it's like, look, we're all spending all day on Facebook. Like it ain't wild west, they're selling ads, right? And so like the, the, the world has moved on and yet this idea that like, oh, I just, I didn't, I didn't want to like tell somebody that's like, you shouldn't be completely horrible to someone else online. Like, of course you should do that. Like it's a basic, you would, like I said, you would literally do that to a child. You would literally tell a five-year-old like that's not an appropriate way to behave and you shouldn't have to tell an adult that. But of course, like if they are transgressing in the manner of a preschooler, then of course you should. Yeah. Hold them. Don't do that. Do you, now, now again, do you think? Do you think part of this is? Uh, I mean, thinking back to, without admitting my age, like the early day, the early days, of mm -hmm. you know, chat rooms and BBSs and and AOL yeah. and Prodigy and all that jazz, and you know, building bulletin board systems on backbones and things like that. Yes. Like, yeah. 
these this was a place where a lot of kids, mostly dudes, mostly white mm-hmm. folks, yeah. this was their superior place. Like they're like, I'm a nerd in school and I can't talk to a girl, but here I'm Lord Dagamarth and I'm awesome. Yeah, and- yeah. There's that's still that narrative of the like the the nerd underdog, right? And I mean, you know, we're all not that I'm saying that's good, but like no, I exactly. But I think if we like, were, you know. If we were admitting our age, we would know that we're old enough that there used to be Revenge of the Nerds movies, right? Yes. And and it was like the nerds as underdogs. And I'm like, okay, that is a cultural narrative. We all understand that reference point. However, the richest, most powerful people in the history of the world right now are all nerds, right? So you take Zuckerberg, you take Bill Gates, you take Larry Ellison, you take whoever you want to point to. Um, and it's like, you're not underdogs. You are not like... <laughs> on the margins like oh you're not you're not getting yeah like you're not getting swirlies you know when you go to work anymore like you are you're doing just fine and in fact like larry elson owns like a hawaiian island right you know what i mean like you're 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 on some other level like you're that you're they're literally like these guys like bezos and these guys are competing to see who can like go to mars first right, right? like when you're in pure bond villain territory then like you can't be like I'm the underdog anymore. And so I think that's a thing that's really it's weird that they're like, yeah, sure, I you know, I'm trying to like I have a per- private personal rocket project that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm still an underdog who's bullied. And I'm like, no, I don't. You know, I just don't think it's true. Like it doesn't really. It seems kind of like bullshit. Well, and I think the thing that's important is realizing like, okay, so so that used to be the narrative. Mm-hmm. And now that's not the case anymore, which then means we're the ones now responsible mm-hmm. to make sure that changes, mm-hmm. to make sure that that narrative doesn't come back, to make sure yeah, and that cultural it, change is really hard. Get better, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so almost like the, it's almost like feeling like you have to walk around the sign being like it's not 1986. It's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's 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 not. We let yeah, it go. Yeah. Well, and also the sort of like. In the communities we talk about, if you talk about YouTube, you talk about Reddit, you know, hundreds of millions of people are going. It's not even, you know, a million, 10 million, whatever, hundreds of millions of people are going. So, like, you have to feel a responsibility for that. And also, they're making billions of dollars. Like, YouTube makes, you know, infinite dollars by any reasonable measure. (laughs) So, you know, there's a responsibility that comes with, like, minting money, which is you, you should be taking care of the people who are there and the reason that you're doing it. So that actually segues really, really nicely into a question that I wanted to ask about who is responsible for community culture and building community at a company? Because I think so often it's pigeonholed into our mm-hmm. departments, but yeah. is that actually the case? You know, I, assuming your audience is mostly community managers and people that have that responsibility, um, what I'll tell you is you don't have enough resources and you aren't given enough power. Uh, and you can tell them that the CEO of a company said that. And and if you want me to talk to your boss, ping me on Twitter and I'll do it because and that's going to happen. That's it's a, it's a, you know what I mean? It's a total, it's such a critical role and it gets disrespected and under-resourced and not properly um, approached as the core to the strategy of a company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I actually see it as analogous to if you go back 15 years ago, you know, design wasn't really respected enough in terms of like creating apps and websites it was this like we'll put some design on it after it's done, right? Like, and and, and it was the only at the you know the aesthetic level, not the sort of functional level. And it took a concerted effort by an entire industry to sort of redefine design as being more important. Of course, then you had these examples you could point to of 
whatever the iPhone and iPod came out and it was like, okay, well design distinguished this thing and it took over a whole market. Right. Um, and, and, and that education process took, you know, a decade or two, but it did work. Now people are like, okay, you know, if you, if you talk to a startup and they don't have a designer, you'd be like, that's bizarre. What's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And yet you do still talk to companies that have products that are based on community and don't have community managers. Right. Um, or they have a community manager and what is often the case, they are among the more junior people, maybe the most junior people on the team. They are forced to do or asked to do um, separate disciplines that are related, but that are complicated to do at the same time, like managing social media um, and communications and marketing, um, which are important disciplines in some, you know, if you're a small enough team, of course you're gonna have multiple roles, but often they're not, and they're sort of stretched in between those things. Um, there are disproportionately women in organizations that are overwhelmingly male um, and often underpaid, right? And so, and and then many times it's the newest role of the company, right? So they're the least tenure, least seniority. Like that is a perfect storm recipe for somebody to be not have enough resources, not have enough power, and um, be very reluctant for valid reasons to like raise their hand and be like, I need more time, space, people, bigger team. I need you to make right. a change. I need the product to change. I need our, our whatever, anything, you know, I need just time, budget, anything. And, and when they do ask those questions, they're told, well, show us, show us what you can do first, prove it. And then we'll give you more resources. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, um, and also honestly, they're treated as expendable too. Right. So there's like a lot more risk. Like, well, we're kind of like, we care, we pay a million dollars to recruit programmers. We can get another one of right. you anytime. Right. And you know, that's a really, I think it's really toxic. I think it's the reason why so many communities fail. I think it's the reason why so many communities that do exist are so unhealthy is the people who are the professionals who have the skills to help fix those things and especially to move it up into the strategic level where they're informing product design, product roadmaps, company structure, business plans, sales teams, you know, sales plans, like all those things are tied into really good community management. And I don't think there are a couple dozen companies in the world that really think that's true and build their organization that way. You know, and I'm very lucky as somebody who has been a community manager, built community, done things like community management and DevRel for, you know, going on the better part of two decades now um, to get to be CEO and bring those values in at a company that I have always had a huge respect for is like Christmas morning, but yeah. uh, it's, I'd like it's to a, say, so I'd love to actually sort of jam on this for a moment. Cause I think this is, this is a huge central topic kind of within the community community. It yeah. comes up. We were just chatting, chatting about this. Is, there, is that a thing? Yes. There is yeah. that's, that's awesome. I love that. I wish yeah, I want a t-shirt. I don't, did you get to see community communities, uh, dot com is available? I don't know if you did that. I, I'll look yeah, it up. Uh, you asked yeah, it's more of a dot biz thing, I think. Um, there you go. Community, okay. biz, yeah. um, or dot WTF, I think would be a good one to do. <laughs> Um, but so for, uh, you know, we, I think at, in central to most of us in community management type roles, we, we know we have this, you know, internal sense that we are influencing, we are making, helping make decisions. We are sort of, you know, taking our empathetic approach in a lot of different places and then bringing that in and sort of synthesizing that and then helping the business, you know, make the right decision moving forward. But so much of what we come up with is anecdotal or it's, um, yes. you know, it's hard to support with numbers. And so for us mm-hmm. to make 
case that we should be able to influence and do, you know, all these things and sort of have a, a say or a seat at the table or whatever, yeah. like it comes down to numbers, comes down to metric. Yeah. And this has always yeah. been the elusive thing within our area. You got any, got any thoughts? Yes. yes. This, I'm obsessed with this. This is literally the thing that, that like animates my days and nights right now. And I think there's a couple parts to it. One of those is, you know, when I got asked that, I would point at stuff like Stack Overflow, right? And I would talk about the scale of users and, and, and the impact and, 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 you know, how the policies work. And of course, the design of the, there's some like kind of gamified aspects of it where you can earn reputation and things by good behaviors. And, and sort of articulating that was all designed by a community team. And in fact, the reason the scale of the site works is because moderation is a shared responsibility with the community. And that's something that was very carefully designed. And you know what's interesting is I've had that conversation. I'm lucky I get to go out and have that. And I mean, you know, I'm on the board, but like none of that's my work. Like I, I want to be clear, I'm not taking any credit for any of that. That was just like, you know, uh, Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood and the team that built it made really good choices. Um, but I, you know, I got to watch it. Like I said, so you're like, okay, yeah, that's it's working pretty well. And you go and you talk to companies about like, this is what it takes. And it was founder level, CEO level, like core product level. Uh, choices and and decisions about it and um it's like there's an immune allergic response to it they reject it like like you know an organ transplant from like a, a tree you know what i mean they're like no like that's not like no way there's never i'm not gonna like i would yeah i would rather like sew a branch onto my you know side of my shoulder than than, than like as a sort of an arm rather than have this idea that this culture transplant is going to happen and we're going to pay attention to these values that are demonstrably working. And it took me a long time to figure out why, right? Like it was a very, I'm trying to be nice. It, it was very frustrating. It was really frustrating to talk to people, you know, in positions of power over these things and, and be like, you know, the costs are so high. Like you see people's lives ruined when harassing mobs go after them online. You see, you know, certainly a huge part of like why we lose great talented people in the industry is they just see this stuff and throw their hands up and like the hell with this. I can go to any other field and not deal with it, whatever. And so the human costs are incredibly high. And of course, dollar costs are high too, right? So you have the like advertisers don't want to be on site with that stuff for whatever your issues are. And, you know, one was ignorance. They just didn't know that it's possible to make a healthy site. They didn't know it's possible to make a community that works. They thought it would be too expensive or impossibly hard. Um, and they didn't know there were good examples. And that, that um, like it's not an excuse, but I'm at least, okay, that's whatever. You don't, you don't know and you gotta be educated. We're, there's all, all of us have stuff we don't know. And then there was sort of deeper thing, which was like, but this makes me have to give up power, right? Like to have a really successful community, you have to empower your community. To have a really healthy community, they have to have agency and control and real influence over what the community is doing and what your future, what your roadmap is going to be, what your company is going to do if they're the ones managing the community. And that, that was actually the thing. That was the thing where it was like, I'm not, I know better than them, right? Like, like that's the core of this thing is you get founders, executives, whoever that are like, I know better than our community what they need. And they will always come back to like, you know, well, Steve Jobs said, you know, if I ask the people what they want, they want a faster horse, but what I want is a car. And I'm, you, first of all, you're not Steve Jobs. Second of all, Apple's never made a successful community. So, you know, there's this really core thing where I'm like, if like maybe that works if you're making smartphones and nobody's ever made a smartphone before. But like iTunes ping didn't really set the world on fire. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, using that as the benchmark for how to design community doesn't work. And right. I think, you, I think you, sorry to interrupt, but I think you bring no, up please. an interesting, interesting point there. The difference between having a, a well-tuned, healthy community and having a group of well-tuned, healthy consumers. Like Apple mm -hmm. has, they have mm -hmm. healthy consumers. They, they will, they're, yes. Will, yes. they're, they're passionate and they love the company and they're, and that's great. They're like, but they're not you're taking away my keyboards and my USB ports? Please, I don't want them anyway. They're so <laughs> Thank you. I'm free. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm unfree by convenience. And, and I think there's this really interesting thing where like all the community stuff that happens at Apple is outside, right? They do have a great community, but it's people knitting it together with meetups and, right. and conferences and podcasts and all the other stuff they do to sort of connect with one another. But it's not, and, I, and like, I'm not criticizing Apple. Like I think that's a fine strategy. I mean, obviously it's worked fantastic yeah, screw, screw them, i mean what are they doing yeah. <laughs> exactly i mean i wish them well like i hope they are able to pull through this tough time they've had of it's making difficult financial arrangements. yeah exactly like the, the struggle is real but like putting that aside i think it's a fine strategy but they're also not interested in that they weren't like you know can you can you consult with us about how we should do this new phone you know like no like we're going to tell you i think that's fine and you can make that work but it's a different thing than when a community is and they're broadly not interested in community. And that's a fine choice. I think that's a great choice. If you're like, I'm not gonna commit to listening, I'm not gonna commit to investing and empowering the community, and I'm not gonna commit to, commit to making an iteration cycle where we can meaningfully respond to things outside of our organization, then you shouldn't have one. And they made the right choice there. And I think for people to think through, a company with arguably the best design in the world, they're designed for communities to not have one because they couldn't do it justice. I think that's a very telling choice, right? They have, by comparison to any other organization, infinite resources. And their choice was community was essentially too hard, too culturally difficult for them. And they didn't do it. I respect that very much, but we don't ever talk about it that way. Right. And I also think that there's some products and some companies that, like PJ said, you know, you've got a very healthy, invested consumer base, but you don't necessarily need that to be a community. Yes. Um, yeah. I remember when I was I was interviewing for my latest job that I'm at and actually talked myself and the interviewer out of hiring me for the position because through the <laughs> series of questions I was asking, I realized they don't you don't need a community manager. You're not looking mm -hmm. to do that. You aren't looking you're looking for someone to grow your user base. You're not looking for someone to build a community mm -hmm. of the people who are using your product. Yeah, you're looking, and, you're right, looking for pre-sales. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're looking for a, a sales engineer. You're looking for pre-sales. Well, you're looking and, for someone and then I would to say, find your consumers. And and probably customer success as well, because that, that's gonna end up being their role to sort of maintain those relationships. But right. And those uh, things are all valuable. And I think knowing that these disciplines are separate, which a lot of I think a lot of leaders still don't know. But the other point about the metrics and the measurement and how do you make the ROI case in the organization, this is the thing I just keep coming back to. And, you know, we, so like I, you know, I started at Fog Creek late last year, so it's a little over six months. And this is a company with a ton of history, like just made these awesome products. And like, you know, again, like I take no credit. That's all before my time. But to, you're like, how do I not screw it up? It's sort of what you think when you join the team. And, and you know, they have been building, um, this tool glitch, which it just, that was the reason I joined the company. It blew me away. It was like, it's a great, you know, you go in your browser and you can just build an app and it's instantly deployed and you can collaborate with people on code, you know, um, like Google Doc style where you're editing it together in real time. And it's just fun. It sort of brought back a lot of the joy of coding for me without this sort of frustration. Um, but what we realized really early on was they had 
you know, the team had been building it. Um, there's a lot of incredible, like sort of technical invention. They had been building it as this very technical product. And what we kind of all realized simultaneously was like, it really doesn't work without becoming a community. And so there was this sort of reimagining of like, how do we evolve from a very good single player developer tool into a community that has coding as its collaborative core, as its action, but is a real community and this real sense of people are connecting to one another. And it was, you know, months and months of work around what's our voice, what's our process for being able to respond to people. Um, how do we sort of iterate in collaboration with the community? And those were like really getting us out of our comfort zone. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a thing, there was a moment a couple of weeks ago where we have a, a partner who um, has a, they're called bot kit. So they have a toolkit for making bots. And they were like, you know, we have, um, and the way glitch works is like you, could, you have projects, you can just remix it and go and they, they pull in from GitHub and, and they have a sample project. And they're like, well, we want to use a separate, readme on glitch so we can explain how it works separate from the readme you just get from github and they're like what if we had like a glitch readme you know markdown file and that'll be that okay and they posted that idea in the slack we have for like our you know friends of glitch and uh i think the team shipped it four hours later and nice and the botkit team was like ecstatic you know and it felt really good i mean i was like again like none of this is my doing like i'm i get to watch it so i'm lucky but but it was a very um it was a great moment because what i realized is this is how you build trust in a community right if the product is like the team is really listening to you and is is able to is like everybody has the agency and authority to make a decision Mm -hmm. to say we're going to give the community something they need because it's substantive and it clearly fits what they want um then you know you're sort of on the right track, and it really was. Um, it was good. I mean, it's a minor feature. Like obviously, there's nothing like technologically. It's not some invention that somebody's never done before. But it was just one of those things where I think it was like a indication of alignment being right. Somebody in the community, and it, and it doesn't matter who you are, being able to sort of say, "I I want this thing." And I think the other part of that that happened similarly was um, we um, so we have the ability, you know, you two people coding at the same time. And we flag errors because it's all Node and you can just sort of see when there's a bug and something going on. And we added a little button whenever you highlight text or you have an error, that's the emoji of the person with their hand raised. And you can click that button and on the homepage of glitch.com, it'll show, you know, Joe or Jane or Jim is stuck and wants some help and they're doing a Node project and these are the libraries they're using. Do you want to go in and help them? Huh. And, um, and basically every question that's been asked so far, it's gotten answered within like two minutes. And what happens is since it's the first thing you see when you go in there and you see somebody stuck, you just click and say, yeah, I'll go in and you go in and you say, can I join your project? And they give you permission to come in and edit and you're coding together. That's brilliant. Yeah. And it just was like, the first time I saw it work was like one of the best moments I've ever seen any product. Like it was just one of those like really great feelings. And what I realized is like we had done all the work to build the trust where people know somebody coming in is going to be, have positive intent that we had just enough identity that, you know, sort of this is somebody that's had a reputation and, and you know, the action that you can do is to thank them. Like, so after they've helped you, there's a little thank button has these little hearts that come up, you know, and animate and everything about the design is really communicating this sense of trust and thing. And like, we need to do a lot more work. It's very early on, but just this idea that a community was centered around acts of essentially generosity to one another 
I thought was such a great thing that the team came up with in terms of how do you, because it's, it's like, it's actually not the core use of the platform. Most of what people are doing is building with people they already know and, you know, troubleshooting their own projects and whatever, but that this early on in the project's evolution, the product's evolution, there was this ability to make connections in the community with the social action being assisting them, helping them was this sort of building the values of the product into the user experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the sort of like, that's the next level that I keep trying to push towards. Like, how do you, how do you make sure community is a, the thing driving product design, driving business model design, um, not just the, the way that we paper over the shortcomings in the product, which I think is a lot of times what communities has to do. Right, right. I want to point out something that I think is uh, sort of parallel or at least interesting uh, comparison to the DevOps community and, and sort of mm -hmm. their efforts about yes. reducing yes. The, the, the time it takes to learn and know things and shortening the feedback loop. And essentially what you just described as sort of the win or the, you know, the, the main sort of identity of a, of a, of a successful metric um, is being able to get that feedback and get that you know, get that out to the, the customer or the community yeah. member, whoever else. I think that um, that's sort of one of the promises of DevOps. And I think a big reason why people have really embraced it. Yeah. And that was, I think that was a lot of it. It was how do you build, you know, we had to build a lot of DevOps infrastructure just to enable the ability to do that. And then how do you, how do you sort of, what I think of as an organization, what we're trying to do is elevate the potential of a functioning DevOps and continuous integration model into like how, like emotional DevOps, right? Like how do you do hug ops at scale, right? right. And, and so like extending hug ops beyond our organization into our commu customer community to where they feel like they're, they're sort of part of it, um, I think is a really, and it's like a joke about like, you know, continuous emotional integration, but like that's the sort of thing that we wanna be doing is this like tying into to how do people, feel. I mean, we joke about this all the time. Like if, that, if that was a talk title, I'd go see it. All right, good. So we start. We I'd be first, I'd first row for that one. I was just, I was just saying. I've got an abstract idea. It just popped in my head. <laughs> right, we'll, we'll do I'm it. Start sure. working on. Wait, pause. I just have to fill out a few. <laughs> really. <laughs> but, but I think I think we think about that. I mean, we we start our standups with like, how's everybody feeling, and how are the people out in the community feeling, and you know what do we think? You know, I also said like my my dream would be to have a a weather app, that, but it shows like the emotional weather of the internet today. Because you like some days you're like you'd be like you know oh I had you know I had a bagel for breakfast and everybody's like why did you do that and you're like whoa all right you know like yeah, maybe I didn't know it was one of those days on the internet you're like, I'm just gonna go back like I sorry I dipped my toe in the water and um and I think being able to sort of read that is really powerful mm -hmm. and then you know the thing that we're thinking through next is that so there's this platform and there's these tools and this like bias towards community not in a real sense like how do we connect with each other and and now what i'm thinking through is like what would it look like to give people the tools to do much more analytical metrics and measurements of it so i, I think about like how many people tried your api on glitch today how many of them succeeded how many of them got stuck how many of them were in that like i couldn't get my api keys and it didn't work or whatever so there's this like you know this ability to catch people where they are and we were talking about this with like Slack and Twilio and, and it's all these companies that have these big platforms of like, what would it mean to you to know the moment when somebody first got stuck and frustrated right. with your API where they, like they had the, the creative spark, the aha moment where they're like, oh, I know exactly what I would use this for. And they get down the road and they get something built and then they get stuck. 
And I mean, I've been this person often or like more often if I'm before I was using glitch, like I would always be like setting up my dev environment and then just be like, oh, the hell with this. Like, I'm like, whatever. I like, I put the kid to bed. Like I'm done. Like I don't have any more time and I haven't even gotten a hello world and that's uh, screwed. I'm not going to ship this. And that was always like such a frustrating, like it was just like such a like lost potential. Like I think how many times I couldn't, like I was like, oh, well, I had just updated the OS and homebrew isn't working. And so I guess I'm, I'm never going to build this thing. <laughs> and, you know, and to be able to go, go like click and I've got something that works and then maybe there's a new API I haven't ever tried out. And then that part, like that works today. Like people are doing that on Glitch all day. And then I was like, what's the next thing that would be the like emotional reassurance I would need is, okay, I've never built, you know, a bot for this platform for like my Amazon Alexa what if the moment I get stuck, the people who made it could be there and yeah. say, you know, we want to help you. And so like, that's what we're trying to build because that's the next step to like, we had first the community connected to each other. We had our ability to have our one company that builds the platform connect to the community. And then the next thing we want to do is like, how do we bring all these other giant companies, like publicly traded companies and have them connect through and be solving the next layer of problems. So each one of these things, which is the moment where somebody gives up, quits, gets frustrated, wants to lash out at somebody, whatever. We just keep building more and more connections into like, we'll catch you when you're flailing. Right. And I mean, that's, that's the dream situation for <laughs> anyone in our roles, right? Like, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. we don't have to go to a hackathon for 48 hours for a weekend to see where people are getting stuck. Like, yeah. And that was so much of it right for me there. too. I, I had felt like, you know, I'm a middle-aged dad and I feel like, oh, the industry doesn't really fit me anymore. I'm not going to a 24 hour hackathon and eating pizza, right. you know, and, and like when I like neglect my kid, get a babysitter, eat stuff. I'm not, I'm trying to eat less of, you know, drink and a ton of caffeine to recover from the lack of sleep. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and ship something that I'm not proud of because I know now I care about it being maintainable and reusable right. and, and having a lifespan and not, just like, yeah, the, the, the first day version, yeah, you can get something cool. Of course you can. Toolkits are amazing these days, but like I'm a grown person who has shipped a lot of software over the years and I care about it being maintainable and, and updatable and, and right. scalable and all these other sort of nice abilities and, and you know, DevOpsable. And so like I'm designing for different things and the, the, the process and infrastructure by which we were trying to connect our dev communities together just didn't fit anymore. Like the idea right. that like, I mean, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to do DevRel in person, but like the idea that like you go to some conference and you throw t-shirts at people and then you hope that means they're going to go to your GitHub page. Like I was like, I want to know if it worked. Yeah. I want to know if I can help people. That's well, the that, part that, I love. That right there, you just pinpointed the difference between community management and community marketing. Yeah. And I, and I think yeah. a lot of companies think that they're one in the same, but they're they're not. Mm. Just because right. someone's walking around wearing your t-shirt doesn't mean that That's right. they're not only that they don't necessarily consider you a part of the community, but they don't consider the company a part of the community. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. my, my take has always been, if you're not participating, you're not part of a community. It's just, that's the the bare minimum. You have to participate. You have to be present. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's easy because, you know, it is exciting. Like I remember the first couple of years I did Darrell and it's like, you have to go and hand out stickers and talk to people about exciting stuff. And like, we got all these cool things for you to try. And they're, I mean, people are nice. And like, that sounds cool. And then, for me, I feel like I never knew if anything came of it. Right. You know what I mean? Like I didn't know if they went back. Like, I mean, broadly, you'd be like, oh, we got a couple of new people kicking the tires. But you didn't know that like, oh, that conversation I had with that person was what made them try it and inspired them. And right. if it did and they got stuck, I couldn't be like, I couldn't care. Like, I couldn't fulfill my end of the 
the relationship. Right. And I think that was such a frustration and such a missed opportunity, such a gap that I just was like, uh, somebody's got to do something. And then of right. course, you know, a couple of years later, I ended up at Fog Creek. And I'm like, oh, this is the place. <laughs> yeah, I think it's always been a challenge for, for us in that role because, you know, even if like for myself, I'm not a specifically dev rel type of role, um, mm-hmm. but as an evangelist, I'm out, you know, seeing yeah. people and I'm up on stage in front of people. And so there's some, some at least some amount of influence, yeah. but being able to track it to a, to a sale or a long-term relationship with somebody like there's, there's just really no good way, you know, that right. we'd be able to never come up with. Yeah, and, and suddenly the, we're back to the metrics conversation. <laughs> you know, part, part of the epiphany that came to me was I looked at like people who run like e-commerce, right? And you're like, we know how many people came to the site. We know if the blue or the green button converts better. We know how many people put something in their cart, how many abandoned, if they abandoned because it was Visa or MasterCard. I mean, they're like, you know, to the pixel, right? Like they've got every single thing optimized. And, you know, and then we go to DevRel and we're like, I, this is how many people came to the site this month. Right. I mean, like, there's no, like, it's just such a weird disconnect. And we're like, they're making software. Like, of course we can help them. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean, it's not, like, it's actually much easier than the, like, did your credit card go through and whatever. Like, there's this thing that is happening, hopefully, in an environment that's connected to the internet. And and so, like, we should be able to do more. And so, I just, I felt like there hadn't been a leap forward. And, and right. that, and I, I do think, I, I don't reject the, like, the push to metrics. Like, you don't want to make community whole something that's numbers driven. But in terms of like, are we keeping the people who are in the community happy? Of course you want to have metrics around that. Like that's a very measurable thing. And I was start, you know, and, and thinking about that, I was like, okay, well, if I were doing consumer marketing or I were doing even, you know, developer marketing, like you could go and get uh, like HubSpot or something and there's a set of tools and they're like, here's what you do and this is whether it's working and here's suggestions on what to do. Okay. Like, okay, what if I wanted to do that for DevRel? Like what tools do you even get? And I and it's shocking because I'm like, here's this whole industry of really, honestly, I think are like some of the most sort of soulful people in the whole business, and and well, like most you. thoughtful. Yeah, no, it's true, right? Like people like really driven by passion. Like can't you because right. you couldn't possibly be doing because you're trying to move up the org chart, right? Like it's not. <laughs> no, That's I mean it. I'm being honest. We're working on a well, whole other episode about that. There's yeah, there's, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's not a lot. Uh, Let's be real. Like, how many companies have you talked to where you're like, yeah, I'm the CTO and I came up through DevRel. Right. Yeah. I'm, not I'm, a the, I'm the CEO. Yeah. Like, it doesn't happen. Like, I'm, right. I'm, I'm literally the only CIO I know who came up, CEO I know who came up through DevRel. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, and then, like, my career is really weird. So, like, it's not a good example. But I think there's this, like, um, that, that skill set hasn't been recognized as a path in yet. Right. And right. so given that that's the case, then all right, let's give better tools. I'm like, and I just, I just assumed there would be, you know, a salesforce.com or, or something for, for doing DevRel. Right. And if there's nothing. There sure are spreadsheets a, though. Yep. Well, that's it, right? <laughs> Every place I've ever worked, you're like, keep track of your CFPs, your blog posts, your podcasts, your yeah. interviews. Yeah, that needs to be in spreadsheets. How many people did you yeah. meet? Put it in a spreadsheet. It's like, what? I, what? No. But yeah, it right. feels like it. Yeah, it's like it's 1997. Like, it's a weird, yeah. it's just such an anachronistic thing. And I was like, if only every single person doing this role were deeply technical and had the skills to build things, maybe we could, oh, wait, <laughs> yeah, we all do. And they're like, well, how, come, how come we don't have any? So I just, that, that's like the thing. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm right. Obviously, like that's something we hope to help with. But I think the whole ecosystem has to evolve. It's like I wish there were just a set of tools where, like, you know, if I'm like I want to buy ads to reach people who are like, 
be in Iowa who have two dogs and spend over X dollars in dog food. Like I can do that in three clicks. Like I could do that in 10 minutes. Right. right? And if I'm like, I want to know everybody who's using node, who's going to try out an API for messaging and is interested in building bots. And it's like, no, it's, there's no way to, that's, no, right. that's impossible. It's that's crazy. crazy. I think yeah. the key is we have how, people how who are passionate. That? We have people who have the technical skills. We don't have anyone who has the time to do it because they're yeah. too busy that's spending right. to that's events. Right. And they're under-resourced. Just about the same. We're yeah. busy writing right. blog posts and docs. Yep. And, and CFPs. Mm-hmm. And talking to people, you know what else I've discovered is I've said to them, well, okay, if you had a set of tools, you know, what would you do? Right. And they were like, well, listen, my budget is for travel, for swag, yeah. and and for events and sponsorship. Right. And they're like, and I have a little bit for that. Mm-hmm. And and it competes with hiring more people for my team. Yep. And if I said I want to spend X dollars on tools. Like that's not even happened. Meanwhile, marketing right. is like, you know, we need something to optimize our tweets and like, sure, knock yourself out. Yeah. And, um, and, and then we're going we back to the same yeah. issue of, you know, cool. Show me that, show me that doing that is, is worthwhile using the spreadsheets and things you currently have. And then if yeah. we need, we'll add the tool later and like, no, you don't understand. We need the tools right. to be able to do right. the thing right. I'm telling you we need to do. And it's such a, you know, one of the things that sort of stuck with me, like I, um, I was a fan of Fog Creek for, 15 years before I joined the company or more. And, you know, I remember back in the day, I would read Joel on software, Joel Spolsky's blog you know, by our founder. And he would talk about like, get your coders the biggest monitor you can buy. Because if they're like struggling to scroll through screen space or whatever, like you're totally wasting your time and the huge investment you've made in hiring them and get them the fastest computers and all this stuff. And like, now that stuff's pretty obvious. Like I think developers have nice machines, but like, when he wrote it in like 2000 or whatever, people were still like, well, we have an old computer. You should use that to dev and here's a 12 inch screen and knock yourself out. And, and interestingly, like that cultural shift happened pretty quickly. People are like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Like you wouldn't make a contractor build your house with like a, you know, a, a rusty old saw. Like you'd be like, okay, let's get the right tools for the job. And so what are the disciplines in which we either won't invest in the right tools for the job for the team or there aren't tools? because there hasn't been any investment in the past. And those are the things where like, that's the signifier, right? And and I I just, I keep thinking about this, like, how do I, how do you fight for the industry to say, you know, every single one of your DevRel people should have a budget of X for the tools they need to do their job. And like, and it could depend on the organization and how many people are trying to reach and all the other stuff. But like, that's the new, like, do you have a computer that works and a fast broadband connection and and a a monitor and whatever. And I honestly, I think we're at this crucial point in the industry where if we don't start getting some of those tools, things aren't going to progress in the ways that we need them to. And it's just going to wind up being, well, DevRel is just too expensive and it's not worth it. And it doesn't get us the the results that we Mm -hmm. need across the board. And and we're already seeing that a little bit because I I like, I recently, I was at a conference that was mostly, it was a lot of VC, a lot of investors. And I was talking to a lot of them about the fact that now like having someone for community or DevRel or evangelism, it is now a checklist item that series B investors come to you. Well, do you have what, are you hiring someone in this position? They don't even know what it is. Right. So they have no no way. And in fact, they don't know how to recruit either. Oh, they definitely don't. Yeah. Yeah. I I will speak from experience on that. They definitely do not. Is there a checklist for um, how to make your organization attractive to somebody who wants to do good DevRel? I, uh, I think every, every individual has a different checklist on what that means. 
Yeah. Well, I would think about like baseline though, right? Because like I remember, so one of the things that like Joel Spolsky had written was it's called the Joel test. And it was like, does your organization use version control? Do they do? And again, like these are things like post GitHub, that's not really that groundbreaking. But like, you know, 15 years ago, it was like, they were companies that were doing that. Like somebody zips up the code once a week and that's how we, if we get totally screwed, we'll go back to that zip file from Holy last week. Jesus. That's too- yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, well, but if I said, I'm not saying I've never worked at places like that. I'm just yeah, saying exactly. Good. Yeah. But that was flashbacks. That was really common. Right. And, and at the same time, if you talk to people who optimize e-commerce and you say there is a role whose job it is, is to go out in the world and get people to believe in and trust a company and they're still doing their work in spreadsheets. Right. They would say, holy Jesus, is that real? Twenty seventeen? Right. And there's no yeah. tools for them to use and nobody will spend. They'll be like, it's absurd. And How these people are responsible to ensure the success of the product. These yeah. are the faces yeah. of yeah. And what they're doing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And they're among the most visible people in your company. Exactly. Exactly. So, so we gotta find a VC that's gonna build this, right? And fund all this. <laughs> <laughs> and you yes. know, I feel you like know, you probably know I, some people. You know, part of what I think about is how do we collectively build it together. And I think about what Stack did, like all of us rely on Stack Overflow to do our jobs, right? Not directly, but I indirectly. copy and paste out of that all the time. <laughs> there's that, but there's also the like, oh, you know, if you want to learn to use that toolkit, there's going to be something there and somebody will answer Definitely. that question. And so it was a platform that moved everybody up, even if we didn't direct, like I didn't answer that question, but like I can get you to the answer. And I think about that, like how to build a set of tools. I mean, you know, some of this we want to do on Glitch of like to like try out an API really quickly and be able to measure success and that stuff. But I think about like, we're never, like we're a small company too. Like we're never going to be able to build the whole ecosystem. So how do we knit together right. the community community? The pieces, yeah. Yeah. And, and have them all say like, cause we're all rebuilding the same stuff from scratch. Mm-hmm. Right. And there is stuff that's bespoke and it has to work for your platform and whatever. But there's a little bit of this, which is just like, like kind of like a sales funnel. You know what I mean? It's like X developers and they went through, you know, this many of them converted into becoming, you know, users of our platform. Um, some parts of that, there's so much knowledge. We should be able to capture it in a processes, tools, whatever, and have the sort of vocabulary about it. And I think that sort of, I don't want to say professional station because everybody who's doing it is very professional, but like that formalization maybe of the process, I think can get us, help us all sort of earn the like, the spending, the investment, time and money from the organizations because it is, you know, I think as you said, it's it's the it's the biggest threat to like us being taken seriously as a discipline, as a as a as a field that people recognize as strategically important to a company, not just like a nice part of the marketing team. Definitely. And this time we um, put a readme file up on GitHub, and just uh, start asking for pull requests. And... Yeah, I, I, I will. I will freely admit I I have in some free time. And there's actually some of it's up on the board behind me. Like tried. To like, yeah. I'm going to put something again, but then I'm always distracted from something. So I'm like, right. well, nobody can, rails, have to, can compute how much a hotel costs right now. Yeah. That's yeah. all it does. <laughs> Which is not. The thing is nobody can, nobody can do it all on their own. But like if we sort of capture all the different components of it um, and people talk about it, I mean, you see the part oh, of the absolutely. talks and all that stuff. And, and it's just, it's such an interesting thing where it feels immature because there's like, I don't know, between all the companies doing it, gotta be billions of dollars being spent right most of it's going to hotels i guess yep. yeah you know, you know you're not wrong and yeah you know and it's just such a weird like i don't know it's very it's great to be on this conversation with all of you because i think like 
there isn't a, a conversation out in the larger world. And, you know, the exceptions are like, you know, like if you, if you're a CEO at Twilio, okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, the importance of the APIs. Right. But like, there's like five companies like that. There's like Stripe and Twilio and whatever that are like an API is what we do. Um, there are other companies that are headed that way. I mean, there would be more of those in the future, but like how many really, really big companies are in that space? Not that many. And so for them to see DevRel as, like I said, strategically important. And yet they put out press releases when they hire a new VP of sales. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. Fascinating. Well, I'm loving this conversation, but I'm also conscious of our time. And mm -hmm. as we've been saying so often lately, I think we're going to have to pick this up another time and do a follow-up. For sure. I think that the entire fall, the six months in the fall, is going to be Community Pulse, the sequel. You know, <laughs> Everything yes. we did in the first six months, we just repeat in this. That's good. I told you we'd come back to this. I like there that. There you go. Well, stay tuned then, because that will probably happen. <laughs> but before we leave, we always like to do our, our check it out section. Mm -hmm. um, and the first part of that is tools, projects, events, things relating to community or community building. And the second half is things you've been enjoying in your personal life lately, tech or non-tech, TV shows, mm -hmm things you use to decompress, all of that type of thing. So uh, let's do a, a round the circle with that. Um, Anil, we'll, we'll let you go second or third since since we kind of sprung that on you. Yeah, sure. um, Jason, I see you making notes in there. How about you go first this time? Yeah, yeah. So like uh, as we were talking ahead of time, I've been um, kind of heads down working on a book and a lot of travel lately. So I haven't really been exposed to a lot of neat things, I feel like, to, to – um, share with others, but on the flight back from San Francisco last night, I was watching the latest uh, live action movie for Death Note, and uh, PJ and I started commiserating over our uh, uh, sort of uh, favorite anime shows or whatever from the past, and I told him Death Note was sort of my, was my gateway into the anime. Not that I've gone down that road very far, but I feel like Death Note is probably one of the better ones out there, and uh, Mary was saying she's never watched any. Um, and I said, I think Death Note is, is the place to start. So uh, I decided to add Death Note as my, as my check it out. If you've never seen it, definitely watch it. Um, and then now that we've talked to Anil uh, for the past hour, so I'm really curious about Glitch. So I'm definitely going to go check that out and uh, encourage others to, to do the same thing. And then I've got one other question for, for Anil before we move on to, to the others. Um, anybody who goes to your Twitter uh, profile can very clearly see that you're a fan of Prince. Um, you've got some <laughs> yeah, sort of yeah. history or maybe some story that you can share with us from, from sure. Prince? Maybe oh, favorite concert or something? Yeah, there's a lot. Um, you know, I, it's interesting. I'm a, I've been a lifelong Prince fan. I think everybody has like, you know, one or two songs they, they like or whatever. Um, and uh, one of the things that's probably not obvious is he was, he was a big internet geek. Mm. He was really into, from early on. So he you know, uh, got online in, in, in the early 90s and and we would have um, AOL fan chats, you know, like kind of like I was a teenager, like normal fan stuff um, and um, and talk about whatever, here's the new song or concert it went to or whatever. Um, and long about 94, 95, uh, he started showing up in the chats. Like he would log in on AOL at his studio, Paisley Park up in Minneapolis and come in and, you know, he was very cryptic and you know, that's sort of very Prince-like kind of like, you know, oh, the doves will arrive, you know, that kind of, but it was this very like, but it was, it was very, um, I mean, it was, it couldn't have been more exciting as a teenager. And, you know, he would talk about, I'm going to be on this award show and I'm going to do these songs and, you know, there's going to be a new song and whatever. And um, it totally opened my eyes wide open about like, 
you know, you could see the future of what all of the whole music industry was going to be, right? You know, like like now you're like Rihanna's tweeting at fans and all that. Like it's very you know normal, um, but to see that in like twenty some years ago um, was sort of an epiphany. And so like that was always one of those things where I like I, I knew you know obviously very talented musician and songwriter and all that other stuff. But I think that was such an interesting thing to me. And he kept that up the whole rest of his life. Like he always had, you know, uh, fan sites and, and that stuff. And he directly engaged with people. He was very active on Twitter and all those things. And I think that was one of those things where um, you talk about community, you talk about how to cultivate. Cause like he was like, you know, in terms of like having a hit song on the radio, he's like, I've done that. He's like, I had the biggest hits you can have and you can, you know, whatever, like I've won the awards. And then he was like, I, he sort of checked it off the list. He's like, I'm not really aspiring to like, let me keep, you know, tediously cranking out the same things that people, you know, can keep on the albums. And I think it was really interesting where he shifted it into like really uh, concerted online community building. And he was not always great at it because he's sort of figuring it out. And also he really did want that control. Like we talked about the sort of, you know, the companies and the organizations that are like, I don't want to give my community control. He wasn't like, you know, for the most part, come in here and hang out with me and help me play my guitar or something. But I think there was a really interesting sort of openness to it, even to the point where like he had, um, by the time he passed, uh, the last tour he did, the, uh, the outfits he wore on stage had been designed by fans online. The uh, last guitar he held up at his last performance at a studio was uh, one that a fan had designed. The uh, cover art in his last albums or illustrations that fans online had designed like all that stuff was collaborations with an online community he built over 20 some years and so I think that's something that uh, uh, particularly uh, all of you you know folks that are watching listening like that's like that was a really inspiring model to me separate from you know this good you know good music to dance to or whatever yeah definitely great story thank you thanks uh, Mary how about, how about you sure um, so this, this one we'll have to circle back to in December and I'll let you know how it goes and how it was, but I'm super excited. Um, once, once a year at SparkPost, uh, we can each choose a personal development conference to go to. Um, and as community managers, we tend to attend a lot of conferences, but not often get to sit through a lot of the content. So I'm super excited about it. Um, it's called, it's World of Business Ideas is the company that puts it on, but their focus for the New York City conference this year is humanification. Um, and it's this idea around focusing on people uh, and making your customers the focus of your business, making people the focus of your business, making, shall we say, community the focus of your business. Um, so it, it got sent to me and recommended to me uh, by a couple different friends and they've they've always had a great focus on leadership and next steps in your career and things like that. So I'm excited, excited to be attending that and, and excited to, to see what kind of information I get out of it. So if anyone else is attending that, let me know and be great to hang out with you while we're there. Um, on cool. Yeah, yeah. On a non-work level, um, Part of my weekend is going to be devoted to playing Monument Valley 2, I have to admit. Um, so if you're not familiar with Monument Valley, it's a iPhone, I'm guessing it might be out on Android as well, but it's this gorgeous puzzle game that has beautiful music and beautiful illustrations and is uh, calm and relaxing, but fascinating and intriguing and everything all at the same time. Um, and my boyfriend and I just discovered this past week that Monument Valley 2 is out and 
I've been consciously not downloading it yet because I know that the second that I do, that's all I'm going to want to do for a while. So that'll be part of my weekend. <laughs> AJ, cool. what about you? Uh, so I've got a few things. Uh, first of all, to kind of riff off of what Jason was mentioning with the uh, Death Note and anime, there's a big announcement this week that Cowboy Bebop, which was one of the most famous animes of all time, they are going to make a live action series and everyone's very concerned um, because it yeah. was, it was kind of a fabulous show. Uh, but in, in looking into it, I ended up coming across a website that actually has all 26 episodes online uh, where you can watch them because it's not available on Amazon. It's not available on Netflix. Um, there are commercials on this site, but uh, feel free to take a look. It is called animeplanet.com. Um, and I'll put the link down at the bottom specifically for Cowboy Bebop. It's, Pretty cool, so I'm excited about that. Um, I also recently have been reading a book. Uh, it is called The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream by Tyler Cohen. And uh, it's quite interesting because we come from this tech world where all we hear is like, oh, it's startups and hustle and everybody's doing their stuff and everybody, yeah, it's great. And uh, it really takes kind of a, a sociological and almost an anthropological look at the fact that Americans as a culture are less willing to take risks. Um, almost, uh, and you see a lot on, like, it's kind of lampooned on, on sitcoms and things like that, where, you know, they have the situation where an angry person yells at person in store and the other person demurs. Um, and it's kind of it, analyzing what that means, um, from like this aspect of society. Like, are you willing to just lay down and take it? Or are you willing to go after your goals and what brought us here and how can we improve on that? So definitely a very interesting book. Uh, I know I had another thing and I totally forgot it because that's well, Tyler's too, got a great blog, Marginal Revolution. Yeah, he really does. He does. Yeah, and I didn't get I honestly didn't get into that until I read the the book, but it's a very interesting especially coming from tech kind of perspective of yeah, uh he's been, he's been doing it a long time and he's a thoughtful writer. I don't agree with everything he says, but it's always worth a read. Yeah, I should you're right. I should add that kind of, I don't agree 100% with the book. However, I think it's a very interesting take. Mhm. Mm very cool. I'll have to check it out. All right, Anil, you're up. Um, a bunch of different things, but I think the first one that jumps to mind in terms of like just actually really inspiring thing that was built, um, it's called the Human Utility. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Tiffany Bell, created it, and it's um, humanutility.org or humanutility on Twitter. And what it came out of was a initial project she made called the, um, the Detroit Water Project. And um, the way it works is it's a municipal water supply in Detroit will um, cut people off if for lack of payment or for late payment. Um, and actually at certain points, it's costing people their houses. They can like be kicked out of their homes um, for not paying a water bill. And it's a really, and in some cases it's over 30, 40, $50, like very small amounts of money. Um, and it, it's a really egregious situation. Of course, you know, um, Detroit's water problems were part of what caused the issues in Flint. And so there's this very, very, um, you know, fundamental human right kind of thing that is compromised. And, and then, you know, uh, Tiffany found a similar situation in Baltimore and other cities. Um, and so what she's built is this really simple matching system where you can find people in need whose water bills need to be paid and just pay them. Hmm. Um, and it's like, it's a very obvious, I mean, you know, obviously we don't want to have to be in that situation, but it was such a like straightforward way to help people with a inarguably necessary thing um and nobody had done it before and it's not like you know the algorithm is not complicated this is not pushing the boundaries of computer science this was about um 
you know, being more thoughtful, more humane and, and deciding to how to apply her skills. Uh, and she's been brilliant with it. She actually was in um, Y Combinator with the project and um, just launched a project where um, a bunch of very prominent uh, VCs are doing a match on whatever people donate. So I think that's been something that is just like, a, for me, has been a really like necessary reminder of what we can build. She built it, you know, um, uh, her and her friend built it in like a weekend. Wow. And so like being able to do that so quickly and with such impact, I mean, the letters she gets that she had posted are just like heartrending, but also like this sort of all inspiring, like you can really change somebody's life. So that was um, human utility. It was my like first pick. Awesome. Um, I have lots of other ones, but I guess the other thing I should do is shamelessly pitch glitch.com. I really do think we've got something special with the community. I think um, a lot, actually, I think a lot of your audience will know uh, Jen Schiffer, who's our community engineer um, and was the, you know, dedicated hire for Glitch of like her job is to make the community healthy and supportive and friendly and fun. And uh, I think she's done a great job. Of course, the whole rest of the Glitch team has done an incredible job in what they've done technically. But I think this idea that we can have a place that is both where experienced devs are going to like learn and try out new things and, and test out new ideas and people who've never built anything on the web before can go in and be helped and ra literally raise their hand and get help okay. from other folks. Um, I think it's just, it's something, it feels like something really special. So it's something that uh, I hope people will give it a try. And I, I'm very, it's, I think it's the best thing I've ever had the chance to work on. I'm very proud of it. Awesome. Great. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your knowledge and expertise and conversations around metrics and community and how to how to build solid, healthy communities. This could have gone on for hours. <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I, I would love to do it again sometime. I really appreciate the conversation and the perspective you all bring to it. And and I, I do mean it sincerely. If, if you if you need you know somebody with a whole bunch of inexplicably high Twitter follower count to yell at your boss about why they should be investing in community. Um, I'm your guy. Come at me, DM me, tweet at me, and um, I will be happy to help you make the argument because it's something I believe in. I'm very thankful for the work you all do. <clears throat> there are yeah, people who will take you up on that. <laughs> Might want to set up a bot to just go ahead and... <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There you go. All right, that'll be the first project we all build together. Yes, <laughs> there you go. Indeed. All right. Well, thanks so much, Anil. We appreciate it. And everyone listening, we will be back hopefully next month with another episode of Community Pulse. Uh, in the meantime, hit us up on Twitter, community underscore pulse. Uh, you can find me, Mary Thingval, at Mary underscore Grace on Twitter. And you can find me, uh, PJ Haggerty, at, at Asplenic on Twitter. And uh, I'm at Jason Hand on Twitter. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks again. Thanks so much. <laughs>